and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 2. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. I am Lisa M. Lilly, author of the Awakening Supernatural Thriller series and the QC Davis Mysteries and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com. This Monday, we're talking about Becoming Part 2. That is Season 2, Episode 22, the second half of the two-episode finale. I will cover the plot points from the midpoint of the two-episode arc through the end, as well as the episode plot turns. We'll also talk about how the pace of part two differs from part one, showing emotion through a character's actions, the concept of a Pyrrhic victory, and how the episode plays out themes that are present throughout season two and foreshadows future relationships and developments. As always, there will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Becoming Part 2 was written and directed by Joss Whedon. We start right where we left off, and it is a fantastic opening conflict for the episode. Kendra is lying dead on the library floor. We hear a cop say freeze as Buffy is leaning over Kendra. There are two police officers. They pull Buffy away. One determines that Kendra is dead. The other says, what about up there? And for the first time, Buffy looks up and sees Xander lying in front of the bookshelves. She tries to get to him, but the police officer drags her out. She is protesting that she didn't do anything. And Snyder comes in with more police and says, why do I find that so hard to believe? He then tells the cops that if there's trouble, Buffy is behind it. When Buffy tries to tell the male cop that she just wants to see if her friends are okay, he says that's enough and tries to cuff her. She punches him and runs. The female cop comes out of the library and fires her gun at Buffy as Buffy is fleeing. The woman cop radios in that a fugitive, a homicide suspect, is on the run and very dangerous. We are only 1 minute 13 seconds in and we go to credits. We come back at the hospital. Buffy is wearing a black knit cap. Her hair is still long and hanging down, but she is dressed sort of unlike herself in this somewhat oversized coat that is not stylish at all and is dark in color. All the same, the cop's radio description included that she had long blonde hair. So when two cops come in later and don't notice her, it cements the idea that the cops in Sunnydale are also a bit slow, something Principal Snyder will explicitly say later on. She sees Xander and they hug. He pulls her closer when the two cops come in. Buffy has just asked about Willow. Xander didn't get a chance to answer before he hugged her and as he releases her she jokes okay that was about equal parts protecting me and copping a feel right but Sander gives her this serious look and doesn't say anything and Buffy says what is it so we've established over these two seasons that Xander always has the joke, the sarcasm, the observation, often somewhat inappropriate and at inappropriate times. So when he says nothing and just looks at Buffy, we already know that something terrible has happened to Willow. The scene shifts. We see Willow in a hospital bed unconscious. There is a bandage on her head. At 3 minutes 21 seconds in, Xander and Buffy are in the hospital room. He says the doctor said it's head trauma, and Willow can wake up any time. But the longer that she is under and in the coma, the worse that it is. Buffy says she should never have let Willow try the curse that Angel must have known. So we have here dramatic irony where we as the audience know something the characters don't. And here it's that it wasn't about stopping Willow from doing the curse. 
It was about taking Giles away. So there are two things that our characters don't know. Angel's purpose, that his purpose is to figure out how to do the ritual with Akathala and that he sees Giles as the key to that. Buffy asks about Willow's parents and Xander says he called them. They are in Arizona with relatives. We don't expect to see her parents because we pretty much don't see anyone's parents other than Joyce. But for the sake of reality, you have to have this mention of where they are. Otherwise, it would stand out so much and would be distracting to the audience, wondering, you know, why on earth would her parents not be here? Buffy also asks about Oz, and Xander says, oh, I I forgot, I'll call him. Cordelia comes in, and just the way she and Xander hug, we know it's the first time they've seen each other. She tells them that she ran, and she probably got through three counties before she realized no one was chasing her. She looks at the floor and says, not too brave. But Buffy tells her she did the right thing. We are now at 4 minutes 37 seconds in. In a self-contained episode, this is where we would see the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling, as it typically comes 10% through. Now, we're in a two-episode arc, so we're long past getting the story started for that arc, But this does serve as a story spark for this episode because this is right where Xander asks if Giles kept up with Cordelia. And she says she didn't see him. Xander tells Buffy he's not in the hospital. So this is that moment when Buffy realizes that Giles is gone. The scene switches to Giles face down on the floor. Angel is also on the floor on his stomach, head propped on his arms and looking at Giles, who now wakes up. Angel says he wants to torture Giles. It's been a long time since he tortured anyone. They didn't even have chainsaws back then. But he walks over to the stone statue of Akathala and says, oh yeah, Akathala, he's an even harder guy to wake up than you. And he tells Giles that he has said the words, he's tried the ritual, he had blood on his hands and nothing. And he thinks that because Giles knows so much, he'll be able to tell Angel what what he's doing wrong. Then Angel says, but honestly, I sort of hope you don't because I really want to torture you. David Boreanis really sells this. This is the darkest that we've seen Angel. There's no joking, no sarcasm, no mocking. It is another time when we have built this character to be a certain way and to now see him so serious without that mocking and joking underscores that he means it. He wants his answer about Akathala, but even more in that moment, I completely believe that he would rather torture Giles. We switch to the Summer's house. The police are questioning Joyce. The main one is that uh, balding, thin detective who questioned Buffy in the episode Ted, where Joyce's boyfriend Ted turned out to be a robot and Buffy thought that she killed him. And we will see this detective again. So I, I really love that he keeps returning and we have that continuity. Joyce is saying she doesn't know where Buffy is, that she thinks she stayed over at her friend Willow's and the detective says Willow Rosenberg and the other one says second victim and the detective says your daughter has a history of violence and he gives her his card and says to call if Buffy decides to stop by. The detective's clearly implying that Joyce is a bad mom. Buffy goes to Giles' apartment and she finds Whistler That demon we saw in the last episode, only in flashback, who set Angel on the path, showed him Buffy, and Angel made the choice to try to do something, to become someone in the world and do something positive. Buffy asks what Whistler is doing there. He jokes that he's looking for a date for the prom, and Buffy has no patience with this. 
She shoves him up against the wall. She says if he has information, she'll be grateful for it. But then she says, if you're going to crack jokes, I'm going to pull out your ribcage and wear it as a hat. This too is Buffy different than usual. Normally she is quippy. Even when she was fighting Angel in the last episode, she was quipping and kind of jeering at him. And here she is so serious. Whistler marvels all the same at her use of imagery. But then he does tell her it was not supposed to go down this way. He figured this would be Angel's big day. But he thought Angel would be here to stop Akathala, not bring him forth. And then he says, then you two made with the smoochies, and now he's a creep again. A great line of understatement and exposition combined. Being somewhat cryptic, he says, what are you going to do? What are you prepared to do? What are you prepared to give up? Buffy says he obviously doesn't have anything useful to tell her and says, what are you, just some immortal demon sent down to even the score between good and evil? And he says, wow, good guess. But Buffy is really angry and she says, well, why don't you try getting off your immortal ass and fighting evil because I'm sick and tired of doing it myself. And Whistler tells her in the end, you're always by yourself. You're all you've got. That's the point. This scene is a good example of using the contrasting personalities and circumstances of two characters who are allies to all the same create conflict between them. We've established from the last episode that Whistler, he likes to use what he probably sees as this kind of wry humor, a bit of this wise guy kind of persona, and that he doesn't want to say things outright. He he led Angel to to where he wanted him to go or where he hoped he'd go by showing him Buffy, by parceling out a little bit at a time so Angel could reach his own conclusions. And he's adopting this same strategy here. And while he has some urgency, he doesn't have the same investment as Buffy. He's an immortal demon. It isn't as vital to him as to her. So you have this conflict. She just wants answers. He wants to trail out the breadcrumbs. I like that contrast. It's a nice example of how to have some conflict when really what you're doing is Buffy is getting information. She's disgusted and leaves, but as she's heading out the door, he calls after her that the sword isn't enough. She has to know how to use it. And now I'll walk back a little on what I said about this being a nice example because while in some ways it is, it also feels a little bit artificial to me that Whistler is parceling out this information, especially because Buffy's going to come back later and he's just still there waiting for her. So it really does feel like, okay, the writers just didn't want Buffy to get all the information at once. But it does help that we've established that this is how Whistler does things. Also, I did not realize until I watched this time that Whistler actually has given her something really valuable that we don't recognize. Because it sounds like, oh, he's just being cryptic. That's how it is. You're all you've got. Blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that really is key. Buffy's now walking in the park and a cop car pulls up behind her. So this cop, despite her ingenious disguise of a knit cap on her head, recognized her, gets out, pulls a gun on her, and then someone from off screen kicks and punches the cop and knocks him out. And he's lying on the hood and we see that it's Spike. He says, hello, cutie. Buffy's eyes widen and we cut to a commercial. This is a great hook before the commercial because of course we want to know why is Spike there. This is another small amount of dramatic irony because as the audience, we know that Spike got out of the wheelchair and has been hiding that from Drusilla and Angel. Buffy doesn't know that and she punches Spike. He tries to hold her off without really fighting her saying that he's waving a white flag but Buffy pulls a stake and she says they're mortal enemies they don't get timeouts Spike says you want to go around pet I'll have a gay old time of it you want to stop Angel we'll have to play things a bit differently she asks what he's talking about and he says I'm talking about your ex pet I'm talking about putting him in the bloody ground Buffy is skeptical Um, she's still holding the stake 
But as they talk, she gradually lowers it, though um, she's saying she can't believe they think that she'll fall for this trick. But Spike says he's got your watcher and that Angel is probably torturing him. This is what convinces her And we know from the previous episodes, Giles is the person Buffy cannot get through this without. And of course, she knows Giles is gone. So this adds the sense that Spike might be telling her the truth. And he says, I want to stop Angel. And he gets this small little grin and says, I want to save the world. Then he tells her vampires like to talk big, ending the world. Um, It's just tough guy talk. As he's explaining, he grabs a cigarette from the cop who's still passed out, lights it, and continues on about how he loves the world. It's got dog racing and Manchester United and billions of people walking around like Happy Meals with legs. And then someone comes along with a vision, a real passion for destruction, and that Angel could really pull it off. And I feel like that word passion is not accidental, given that that was the name of the episode where Angel killed Jenny Callender. Buffy's still skeptical, she says, but why would he ever come to her? Spike looks at the ground and he says he wants Drusilla back. The way she acts with Angel, he can't stand it. Buffy says he's pathetic and he says, I can't fight them alone and neither can you. After punching him again, she says she hates him and he says, I'm all you've got. I love this scene between the two of them. They are both being honest with each other, and it takes Spike a while to convince Buffy, as it should. If she just went along with him, despite that we know he is telling the truth, she would just seem far too gullible to be our hero. Then we get a great ending because she finally says, okay, talk. But the cop has started groaning, and Spike starts to turn toward him and says, "Uh, just let me kill this guy. Like, it's just this little loose end to tie up. And Buffy clears her throat, and he says, oh, right. And they walk off and leave the cop on the hood. We are now about one quarter through the episode, at 10 minutes, 47 seconds in. That moment of Spike and Buffy agreeing to work together which is a great one-quarter turn for this episode. Usually at that point in a story, we see this major turn, but it comes from outside the protagonist and spins the story in a new direction, which is what we have here. This is a two-part story arc. We're well past that point in the story as a whole. We don't really have to have a specific one-quarter major plot turn here, and yet we do. And that is what helps keep keep this episode really moving along. And notice overall, so much is happening here in the present day story. In contrast to Becoming Part 1, which still had a nice plot structure and moved along, but half of it was telling the story of the past and then some of the present day story. But now it is all present day, it is all moving, and all this that we learned in the flashbacks is paying off. In the hospital, Xander is holding Willow's hand. She's still unconscious, and he talks to her, telling her to wake up. He needs her. Um, How else will he pass Trig, and who will he call each night to talk about all the things they did all day? He says, you're my best friend. You always And then he says, I love you. There is uh, some controversy in the fandom. Is Xander saying, I love you in a romantic way? I have always read it as him saying from his heart how much he loves her, his best friend. And she has always been there. Either way, Willow starts to wake up and she says, Oz. And we hear Oz say, I'm here. He has just walked into the room. Xander quickly moves out of the way, says he'll go get the doctor. This is part of why I see this as Xander's declaration of his deep love for his friend, as opposed to romantic, because nothing in the way that he gets out of the way seems like he was disappointed that she says Oz. Spike and Buffy are walking together to Buffy's house. They've reached the front walk when Joyce pulls up in her SUV, leaps out. She's been looking for Buffy. She's really worried. She says, who is this man? What's going on? And Spike says to Buffy, what? 
your mom doesn't know? Buffy shoots him a look and she tries to cover. She tells her mom she's in a rock band with Spike. Spike says uh, Buffy plays the triangle, but Buffy at the same time says she plays the drums and they are awkward. Joyce is very skeptical. She looks at Spike and says, and what do you do? And he says, well, I sing, which is really funny because James Marsters is a really good singer. Buffy keeps trying to get Joyce to go inside, but Joyce wants answers. A vampire attacks. Buffy and Spike, without a word, fight him together, and Buffy dusts him. And this is such a great moment because it is the first time they act as a team, and it just happens so seamlessly. Spike says, it was one of Angel's boys. He won't get a chance to tattle on us now. And so now there is an us. Joyce is really confused and shocked, and finally Buffy says, Mom, I'm a vampire slayer. This also underscores Buffy and Spike working as a team. She has now told her mom this momentous thing that she has been hiding and covering, and she did it in front of Spike, in a way with Spike's support. And we cut to a commercial. So another great hook, because how is Joyce going to take this? But the writers delay that even more. Today's show is sponsored by writingasasecondcareer.com. There you can find articles about writing, marketing, publishing, and time management for writers, especially for writers who are working full-time at another career or who have other significant responsibilities. You can also find books on writing, including Super Simple Story Structure, A Quick Guide to Plotting and Writing Your Novel, Happiness, anxiety and writing using your creativity to live a calmer happier life the one-year novelist creating compelling characters from the inside out and of course Buffy and the Art of Story season one writing better fiction by watching Buffy Buffy's in the kitchen. She's on the phone with Willow, and Willow is saying she's okay. The doctors don't think her brain got mushed. She's sorry she didn't get to cure Angel. Buffy says that's okay. It makes it easier because now she knows she'll never get Angel back. In the living room, more great use of body language to convey feeling. Joyce is sitting on the couch in front of the coffee table. She is clutching her drink with both hands, and her feet on the floor are turned really awkwardly. They're inward with their toes pointing at each other. Spike is sitting in a chair. His hands are folded in his lap. He's angled slightly away from Joyce. This conveys his awkwardness so well because normally we see Spike in motion. Even in the wheelchair, his body language is always expressive. His face shows expression. He's moving his arms. And here he is just sitting and kind of looking awkwardly away from Joyce. Now Buffy is talking to Xander on the phone. And remember, this is pre the age when everyone had cell phones. So they exist. But mostly people talk on landlines. Buffy would be in the kitchen talking and have left her uh, Uh, Joyce in the other room. She tells Xander she found out that Angel is holed up with the others at a mansion on the edge of town and it's the one she and Xander noticed once before. So this is a really quick way to establish why Xander later in the episode will know where to find Buffy. She tells Xander she's hitting the mansion at daybreak but she doesn't need backup. She's got it covered. In the living room, Joyce asks Spike, have we met? And Spike says, you hit me with an axe one time. And he um, mimes holding up an axe from that scene in School Hard where Spike was introduced and Joyce intervened to help Buffy. And he says, remember, get the hell away from my daughter. Joyce says, oh, and she nods and takes a breath and says, so do you live here in town? And I really love Joyce trying to make conversation with Spike, even though she is in shock over all of this. Fortunately for both of them, Buffy comes back. Buffy reassures Joyce Willow is fine and then speaks directly to Spike. He walks over to her. They're face to face. 
Spike wants Buffy to let him and Drusilla leave town. And in exchange, he'll help her kill Angel. And Joyce says, Angel, your boyfriend? Buffy ignores her and says, no deal. Drew killed Kendra. And Spike says, Drew bagged Slayer? She didn't tell me. Ickle for her. Though not from your perspective, I suppose. As the scene continues, Buffy and Spike continue making their deal, and Joyce keeps interrupting. Sometimes Buffy gives her a quick answer. Sometimes she ignores her. One of the things Joyce asks is, uh, did Kendra explode? And Buffy says, no, Kendra's a slayer. And Joyce says, honey, are you sure you're a vampire slayer? And a few lines later, she says, have you tried not being a slayer? In between, Spike is making his case for letting him and Drusilla go. He says they'll leave the country and Buffy will never hear from them again. He bloody well hopes. Buffy finally agrees but says, if Giles dies, she dies. I feel like this is probably the hardest thing for Joyce to see her daughter saying this, making this deal, like she will kill Drusilla. Maybe Joyce grasps that Drusilla is a vampire. She probably does, but there's so much she has to take in here. Spike leaves. Joyce and Buffy argue. Joyce is saying, like, it's because you didn't have a strong father figure, isn't it? And Buffy tells her it's fate, accept it. And Joyce is in denial. She wants to call the police. Buffy says it'll only get the police killed. It's a great example of, again, two people who should be allies who really care about each other. We saw Buffy in season one struggle with rejecting her destiny as the Slayer in that first double episode. And she's continued to fight, always saying she wants a normal life. She has had this time. She has figured it out. Joyce has been in denial the whole time. And now that she is forced to confront this, her initial reaction, it is awful. It is to question Buffy. And this is where the metaphor is so strong as well to the coming out story. Buffy has told her this thing about herself that she kept hidden. And her mom reacts in the way that Buffy probably always feared. Yes, she didn't tell her mother because it was all about secret identity and keeping everyone safe. But on some level, she probably feared that Joyce would reject her. And initially, that is what Joyce is doing. First, she doesn't believe her, despite having seen it. Buffy is saying, wake up, you've washed blood out of my clothes, like how many times? Joyce wants to maintain her denial. And then ultimately in this scene, she will almost throw Buffy out. Not quite, but um, it has that effect fact. When Buffy's telling her how hard it is, Joy says, well, it stops now. And Buffy says, no, it doesn't stop. It never stops. Do you think I chose this? Do you have any idea how hard it is, how lonely? But I have to save the world again. Now Joy says, this is insane. Buffy, you need help. And Buffy says, I'm not crazy. Joyce tries to keep her from leaving. Buffy pushes her aside. And this is where Joyce says, you walk out of this house, don't even think about coming back. Buffy leaves, but she doesn't shut the door behind her. Very symbolic and also conveying her emotions. Joyce, we see her face kind of crumple. She sags onto the counter and puts her head in her hands. And we know that she already regrets how she handled this. I see that scene, Buffy telling her mom the truth, as the episode midpoint commitment. Buffy has thrown caution to the wind by telling her mother the truth about herself. And that is one of the things that we see at a strong midpoint. As far as the two-episode arc, we are at or nearing the three-quarter turn. As it should, the three-quarter turn here arises from the midpoint, from that reversal Buffy suffered where Kendra was killed and Willow's spell was interrupted. And now in the hospital, we are going to see Willow make her own sort of throw caution to the wind commitment, but also spin the story. Cordelia is commenting, Buffy's going to have this 
showdown tomorrow morning, and she says she wishes they could help, you know, without dying. This is where Willow says she wants to try the curse again. She never got to finish the spell. Xander doesn't like the idea. It's powerful magic, and Willow is weak. A very quick reminder and callback to Giles talking about the danger of doing this spell. Willow says she's okay. We get some humor because Xander says she doesn't look it. And she does still look weak. She still has this bandage on her head. And he says to Cordelia, like, tell her. And Cordelia says, you should listen to him. The hair, it's so flat. And the lips. Willow, though, insists. She says, do you see my resolve face? You've seen it before. You know what it means. And she points out, if the curse works, it'll stop Angel from awakening a Catholic. Oz has been sitting in a chair off screen and he says something like, wow, I sure missed a lot because this is all making a kind of sense that's not. This too is such a quick scene, but it has so much conflict, a major turn. It fills in some information for viewers who missed Becoming Part 1. That is a lot. So again, the pace in this episode is very quick in contrast to Becoming Part 1. Willow tells Oz to go with Cordelia to the library to get what she needs and then tell Xander to go to Buffy, tell her that Willow is trying the spell and maybe Buffy can stall Angel. We go back to Giles and Angel. Giles looks exhausted as if he has been through so much. Angel tells him he's been brave, but it's enough. Angel can make the pain stop. And Giles, he he does a great job of acting like he is ready to give up. And he haltingly tells Angel that to be worthy and awaken a Catholic, he must perform the ritual in a tutu. Angel says, all right, someone get the chainsaw. But Spike, comes in on his wheelchair and says, now, now, don't let's lose our temper. Angel says, stay out of it, sit and spin. But Spike says Angel will never get answers if he kills Giles. Angel is suspicious of this and asks when Spike got so level-headed. And Spike says, right about the time you became so pig-headed. And Angel buys it. I love that Spike is so much better at undercover than Buffy. And we kind of, we knew that because he has been hiding from Drusilla and Angel that he can walk. Spike tells Angel there is another way and he calls Drusilla and asks if she wants to play a game. So we also see that Spike is clever because he will throughout this devise ways to put things off to keep Giles alive without it looking like that's his motive. Buffy goes to the library to get that sword that we saw last episode that Kendra brought. She has just unzipped its case when Principal Snyder walks in. He tells her this is a crime scene, but then she's a criminal. Buffy argues, saying the police will figure it out. They'll realize she didn't do it. And here's where Snyder says, in case you haven't noticed, the police in Sunnydale are deeply stupid. And he says it doesn't matter. Buffy has proved to be too much of a liability for the school. He pauses, says this is the type of moment you have to save her and he says you're expelled. Buffy doesn't answer. She just pulls out the sword and Snyder looks really nervous. She studies the blade and then says, you never ever got a single date in high school, did you? And Snyder says, your point being, this exchange doubles down on some of the high school is hell metaphor. This idea that some teachers and others in authority take out their frustrations from their high school experience on their students. Of course, not that that ever happens in real life. Buffy points the sword towards Snyder, but doesn't touch him with it and walks around him and out. In the interview on the DVD, Joss Whedon says his point in becoming parts one and two was to strip away everything from Buffy. She has now lost her family. Joyce has said, don't come back because of who Buffy is, because of her duties as the Slayer. Now she has lost school. So it's it's gradually she's losing all the things that to this point have helped her survive, not letting herself be defined down 
into only her role as the slayer has kept her alive and now these things are being taken away. Snyder dials his cell phone and he says, it's Snyder, tell the mayor I have good news. Now we'll never find out in this episode why he called the mayor. This is a great example of a story question. Something you can weave in there that raises a question. Usually you want to answer those within your novel. Let's say you would weave those in throughout, tie them up um, at the end. But if you have an installment series, you probably want one or two small ones that you don't answer. And that helps keep the reader going into the next installment, the next book, the next episode, the next film. So here, this is a little question that makes us wonder what is the role of the mayor? How is Snyder connected to him? You do have to be a little careful with that. If you put in too many of those and don't answer them by the end of the current installment, readers will get angry because they have read this whole book and they have not got answers. But here, what the mayor's role is doesn't affect this story. So it is okay leaving it hanging there and it makes us curious. I also like that we don't know what the good news is. Is the good news that he expelled Buffy? Is the good news that Buffy has this sword and maybe can stop a Cephala? We don't know. We are back to Giles. Drusilla is standing behind him and she says, let's see what's inside. Of course. And she moves in front of him, her face right in front of his face. The words very similar to what she said to Kendra in Becoming Part One. Look at me. Be in me. And then she says, see with your heart. She covers his eyes with her hand, takes her hand away, and now she is Jenny Callender. Giles is near tears for the first time. We have seen him while he's being tortured, after being tortured, no tears. But here he almost is crying and he says, I thought I lost you. Jenny says she'll never leave him and plays this out as if she's worried, asks, did he tell Angel about the ritual um, and how can she help? And gradually, she gets it out of him. She's like, tell me what to do. You know, I'll help you and we'll be together and we'll get all the things we never had. Eventually, he says, keep Angel away from Akathala. And finally, that it's Angel's blood. That is the key. Drusilla, still as Jenny, kisses Giles. Angel and Spike are watching, and Angel says, blood, of course. It has to be his own, his blood, his life. And then he says to Drusilla, kill him. And Spike says, what if he's lying? So again, saving Giles' life. And Angel says, right, don't kill him. And then that he kind of likes having Spike watch his back. It's like old times. Now they both turn and really see that Drew is still kissing. Giles. Spike says, uh, Drusilla. And Angel says, honey. And Drusilla says, sorry, I was in the moment. And we see Giles' face as it hits him that it was not really Jenny. We're now 28 minutes, 53 seconds in. Buffy has gone back to Giles' apartment to talk to Whistler and says, what do you mean the sword is not enough? After making another joke, he tells her Angel is the key. The blood opens a vortex and Cathala will open his mouth to swallow the world. We knew that, but now we get that only Angel's blood will close it. With one blow, she has to send them both to hell and close Cathala. But he warns her she should get there before Akathala opens his mouth because the sooner she kills Angel, the easier it'll be for her. She says, don't worry about her. She has nothing left to lose. But as she leaves, he says, wrong kid, you got one more thing. This last line, it's a hook or a, a question that is meant to keep the audience coming back. You do want to have that, let's say, at a chapter ending. And usually, I think Buffy is fantastic at this. This one feels a little artificial to me. Um, I guess you could say its purpose is also, it's foreshadowing, it's preparing us. But I don't know. To me, it, it feels purposely put there, and it's distracting from the story. And it's a tiny thing to say distracts me in this episode. 
We are almost at 30 minutes in. That means we have about 12 or 13 minutes left. And yet it feels like this whole thing from here on is the climax. And it does what we saw with Becoming Part 1 where there was a major reversal and we thought that was it, Kendra's death. And then it just upped the stakes and a greater reversal and a greater reversal. And we will see something like that here. There is more than one moment that could be the culmination could be the climax and then the stakes will be upped again um I hate using that term it's like it's like I'm trying to do a pun and I'm I'm not it just happens it does continue to escalate the tension beyond where you could end the story so the sun is rising over the trees Buffy is walking toward the mansion with the sword and Xander kind of jumps out and says the cavalry's here the cavalry's a frightened guy with a rock but it's here she gives a mistake, tells him to get Giles out. She'll be too busy fighting and killing to protect Xander. He admires the sword. She says, it's a present for Angel. And Xander says, Willow, she told me to tell you. And they both stop and look at each other. And Xander, you, you can almost see him making this decision. He says, kick his ass. And Buffy just walks on. So this is another area of question and controversy among fans and podcasters and commenters. Did Xander, what are his motives here? A lot of people read it as this is an extension of his pettiness and jealousy about Angel. He doesn't want Buffy to have her boyfriend back or he resents it. I always read it as Xander feeling like telling Buffy Willow is trying the curse could undermine her, could make it hard for her to fight Angel and could end up getting her killed. Because she has even said to Willow, it makes it easier knowing I won't get him back. So I read it as Xander trying to decide what will help Buffy the most. Now, even that can be problematic because he is making a decision for her about the information he thinks she is better off having it withheld and he's going expressly against Willow saying tell Buffy and we have seen throughout the show Willow is the one who is consistently on Buffy's side even when she is worried for Buffy or disagrees with Buffy she is there to support her friend Xander is ignoring that he is contradicting that so I love the moment because there is so much going on there and so much for the audience to consider and think about Angel inside is chanting in Latin before a cathola. In the hospital, there are lit candles on a tray, Cordelia has incense, and Willow tells Oz he doesn't have to understand the Latin, she hopes, just say the words. We cut back to Angel. He has now cut his hand so he has his own blood on his hand. Buffy from nowhere kills a vampire and says, hello lover, echoing what he said to her before they started to fight in Becoming Part 1. Angel is annoyed. He says, I don't have time for you. And he also says, do you really think you can take us all? And Buffy says, no, I don't. And behind Angel, this just so quick moment we see Spike stand and he clocks Angel. I don't know if he has a, a pipe or a cane but he knocks him to the ground and Spike is just wailing on Angel as Buffy fights the other vampires. Drusilla runs at Spike. Xander comes in, punches one vampire. We go back to the hospital. Oz is reading Latin aloud. Willow is speaking the spell in English. She says, not dead, not of the living. Back to Xander, getting Giles untied. Giles isn't really cooperating because he doesn't think Xander's real. He says, they get in my head, show me things I want to see. And Xander looks at him and says, then why would they make you see me? Giles says, you're right, let's go. Mike and Drusilla are still fighting. Buffy is fighting with all the other vampires. And Angel gets up off the floor. We're at 33 and a half minutes in. He goes to a catalog, grabs the sword, and draws it out. And we see flashing lights everywhere. In the hospital, Willow falters and her words slow down. 
Buffy and Angel now are in a sword fight. Angel tells Buffy Cathala is about to wake up and she's going to hell. And she says, save me a seat. In the hospital, Willow is breathing very hard and suddenly her head jerks up. Her chin goes up. She's staring at the ceiling and then her head jerks back down. She's looking down, but she's not reading. She switches to Latin and she's speaking very fast. Cordelia and Oz are worried. Oz says, is this a good thing? And Cordelia says, hey, speak English. Angel is winning the sword fight. He drives Buffy out into the courtyard, which is mostly in shadows. Inside, Spike finally overpowers Drusilla. He gets her in a chokehold, cutting off her air, and she goes unconscious. So remember how Angel couldn't give Buffy CPR because vampires have no breath? This has always bothered me with Spike and Drew because that would wouldn't work on a vampire. All the same, the first time through, probably the next couple times I watched, I don't care that it's inconsistent because the plot, the story is so good, the emotion is so strong, and the important thing is Spike overpowers Drusilla. I suspect the writers wanted to do it in a way that was not overly violent. Spike wants to get her out. He does not want to hurt her. Angel has fought Buffy into a corner. As Spike leaves, he sees them and he looks concerned and he says, God, he's going to kill her. Then he tilts his head, arches one eyebrow, almost gives a little shrug and walks out carrying Drusilla. Buffy is crouching in a corner against a wall. There is just a slant of sunlight over her face. Angel stands over her pointing the sword at her face and he says, that's everything. No weapons, no friends, no hope. Buffy shuts her eyes and he says, take all that away and what's left. He thrusts his sword for the kill. Buffy raises both hands, even though her eyes are still shut, claps them together around the sword, stops it dead and says, me, and shoves the sword back at him. So this is that callback to when Whistler said, you're always alone, you're all you've got. So he did say something that mattered. I like to think Buffy would have gotten here anyway. She would have said this anyway. It is really powerful. And the whole momentum of the fight changes. This is also a nice inversion of what Spike said in School Hard, where he got so disgusted because he's trying to kill Buffy and Joyce shows up and helps Buffy. And he's like a slayer with family and friends. Who ever heard of that? And it's clear that that gives Buffy her strength. That helps her win fights and survive. But here we have the opposite of that. And I feel like this is another metaphor, not for high school, but for life. That need for balance between having a centered, developed self and a strong feeling of who you are inside but without the family and friends and things in life that you love and enjoy, then you're unbalanced. Throughout the season, Buffy has drawn on both. The beginning of the season, in the pilot, she tries to push everyone away and go it alone, and that doesn't work. That is very dangerous. Now here she finds, if she has to though, she has that strength inside herself. So the message I think of this season is that Buffy as the slayer needs both as we all do so now we are at the climax in a weaker story we could have had a climax where spike knocks out angel there's this fight then buffy fights angel and prevails we don't even get that moment with buffy saying me and pushing back and that could work. Buffy as the protagonist would still prevail and it would be because she made that alliance with Spike. So it would be through her own doing, but there wouldn't be this deep emotion and there wouldn't be this moment where all is lost, where she looks like she's going to die and then she gets through it by calling on her inner strength. We also could have had a much, much weaker climax where they have this fight and Willow's spell works and Angel's back to himself and Buffy doesn't have to kill him and all is good. That would be weaker because then Buffy is not really the one who prevails and we want our protagonist to be the one who saves the day.
day. Or the protagonist can lose, but even if the protagonist loses, it should be the protagonist who is active, who is pulling out all the stops. And I see this sometimes in plot outlines. Somebody comes in from outside the protagonist and just saves the day, or it's just good luck. Angel slips and falls and falls on his stake. We don't always know quite how to have the protagonist use all their strength and skill and cunning and yet still have it be a dramatic fight. Sometimes we don't want to torture our protagonist. We like that protagonist so much. We don't want to make it hard for them, but you really need that in a climax. We get this amazing climax because it would have been truly a big enough moment. Buffy saying me and turning the tide in the fight and the momentum. But because all of this has happened, the first time through, I am pretty sure I forgot that Angel had pulled the sword out and a Cathala was still going to open. Or maybe I thought that, oh, it was wrong. There's something more he has to do than pulling the sword. Because we've had Drusilla and Spike fighting, we've seen Willow with the spell, we had this sword fight that was amazing in itself and that moment with Buffy and Angel in the courtyard. If they had this fight and now Angel pulled out the sword, it would be uppermost in our minds as viewers. But instead, we have all this in between. So we're really focused on Buffy's triumph as she fights Angel back into the manor. And then we even have a couple more things because we see Spike driving Drusilla out of town in a car with all the windows blacked out. Very much a reflection both of Angel when he first saw Buffy and was looking out of that blacked out car and when Spike first drove into town in Schoolhard. We switch to Willow in the hospital. The tray table is rocking with the candles on it. She grips it and keeps chanting. The orb glows and Willow blinks and her body slumps and we see she is back to herself. Now Angel, Buffy has driven him into the manor. He's fallen on his knees, much like we saw in Becoming Part 1, that flashback when he first was cursed with his soul. And also like when Darla made him into a vampire. He was on his knees in front of her. His eyes glow as they did in the flashback, and he's confused and asks what's happening. So we really needed that story from becoming part one to know that yes, when he gets his soul back, he isn't going to remember everything right away. He isn't going to know what happened. There is this lag time. So we've established that and we're not expecting him to just snap back to himself. Buffy keeps her sword raised. She is uncertain and he says, Buffy, what's happening? And she very gradually lowers her sword much like she gradually lowered that stake in the conversation with Spike. But finally, she is convinced. Angel stands. They hold each other. She whispers, Angel. And he says he feels like he hasn't seen her in months. His back is to the camera. We see her face as they're holding each other. She's so grateful he's back. And yet you can see all the pain that she's been through. And we get the Buffy Angel theme music. Then Buffy opens her eyes. And they're standing in front of a Cathala. Angel's back is to the stone demon. So Buffy is facing it. And her eyes widen. And we see that its mouth is starting to open. Angel asks what's happening. She tells him, shh, don't worry about it. As the vortex opens behind them and it swirls, gradually getting larger, she says, I love you. He says, I love you. And Buffy says, close your eyes, like Darla said to him. Buffy kisses him one last time. The vortex has become giant. It is swirling behind them as they kiss. Buffy steps back. He still has his eyes closed. And with one blow of the sword, she strikes right below his heart. And the vortex pulls him in, but slowly. So we see him going backwards into this vortex. His hand is outstretched toward Buffy. The sword is sticking out of his chest. And he says, Buffy? A cathola closes. Buffy's face just breaks. She has won. But this is a Pyrrhic victory. That is where the protagonist achieves a victory or goal at too great a cost. 
And that is the perfect example of it. So at the end of any story, our climax, the protagonist either wins, loses, or wins, but at a great cost, almost unbearable cost. We are now in the falling action we're at 40 minutes, 11 seconds in. As a Cathala is turned back to stone, is dormant, Buffy is looking at it, and we get um, a sad Sarah McLaughlin song about winter, not seeing the sun for weeks. It is also about love, and it's called Full of Grace. I put a link in the show notes if you want to cry and listen and relive this. Buffy walks to her house, and she looks at it from outside. We switch to inside. That song is still playing throughout. Joyce is going up the stairs looking exhausted and she says Buffy but when she goes into Buffy's room we see empty hangers in the closet, a few clothes strewn on the bed and a note and Joyce sinks down on the bed and reads it. It tells us something about their relationship. She didn't just disappear, she did leave a note. We switch to school. It's bright and sunny. Oz wheels Willow in a wheelchair. Cordelia is with them. Xander and Giles meet them. And no one has seen Buffy. Oz says, but we know the world didn't end because check it out. Any gestures to the sun, to everything going on. Giles tells them they went to the manor. Akathala is dormant. And they speculate on what happened. Maybe Buffy had to kill Angel and she needs to be alone. Willow hopes the spell worked and she and Angel are off being alone together. They all agree that there's still school, so Buffy will have to come around soon. They don't know that Snyder expelled her. Willow is the most hopeful that Buffy will be back in a while. They walk into the school. From across the street, Buffy watches them. She turns and walks away. She is wearing a baggy sweatshirt, baggy overalls, much like we saw her in Ted after she thought she had killed him and that he was a human being. She's carrying a large shoulder bag. Her clothing tells us how Buffy is feeling, but also the fact that she stays apart from her friends, watches them, and doesn't go to talk to them, doesn't let them know that she's okay. She left a note for Joyce, at least. She doesn't even give them a hint. And I I did not think about it before. Maybe this is because of the message she thinks Willow sent her about kick his ass, that that seems so cold to her, or she feels that they will not understand. So she just walks away from them as well. Also, and this is this is what I thought when I first watched it, it's just that overwhelm. Buffy just cannot handle all this anymore, and she's going to leave. The scene switches to a bus window. We see Buffy's face, and then the bus is down the road past a sign that says you are now leaving Sunnydale. And that is the end of the episode. On a more fun note, I saw something this time that I am almost certain I never saw before because you've got to watch all the way to the end of the credits and there's that little monster that goes across the screen and usually says, grr, arg. This time he goes across the screen and he says, oh, I need a hug, which just cracked me up. A couple more things from the DVD interview with Joss Whedon. He commented that the biggest challenge of the show overall is keeping the tone of mixing horror, comedy, and soap opera. And we really get that here. And he also said uh, he always aims for you never know what to expect. And that is definitely the case in this episode. I am sure the first time around, it never occurred to me that Buffy would get Angel back, but only when it was too late and she would then have to kill him. Joss said that with Spike, Drusilla, and Angel, they deliberately left it unclear. Is Angel really still that attracted to Drusilla or does he just act like it to drive Spike crazy? I think maybe a little bit of both, but it works because either way, 
It motivates Spike's alliance with Buffy, and we believe it. Next Monday, I will be doing a season two roundup. I haven't quite figured out all the topics yet. Theme will definitely be one of them. After that, I will take a break between seasons, but we'll come back on August 3rd with season three, which I'm so excited about. I've already talked about how I I really love season three. It may be my favorite of all the Buffy seasons. I do have spoilers coming, but if you're not sticking around for that, thank you so much for listening and a special thank you to patrons who help support the show and demonstrate that they would like it to continue. And I hope to see you next Monday for the season two roundup. And we are back for spoilers. The moment with the cop when Spike is about to kill the cop, he's so casual, oh, let me just kill this guy. Buffy just clears her throat and he stops. That moment is the first time we see Spike alter his behavior, his essential nature, because he is allying himself with Buffy. So he is willing to do things her way. Or more realistically, he knows he has to, to get her to work with him. But this is such a great start for what we will see in season four, when Spike gets that behavior modification ship and cannot behave like he normally would. I feel like that journey begins here with his choice to alter his behavior. In contrast, Angelus, you cannot picture Angelus ever doing that. But Spike genuinely can recognize, oh, right, this is not Buffy's perspective. Even about Kendra, he has enough empathy to realize that Buffy sees it differently when he's saying, oh, Drew bagged a slayer, ickle for her though not from your perspective, I suppose. And to care enough to say that, even though at that point, Buffy probably was going to work with him regardless. So we see this shift, and I feel like it really sets up Spike's entire arc. Because while the chip takes him quite far in that arc, there is also that part of him that makes choices. And unlike Angel, who we've talked about before, has that soul thrust upon him, Spike will later choose to get a soul back. And obviously, it also kind of starts setting up Spike and Buffy that at some point they will have a deep relationship. At the same time, we definitely see here that Spike has not totally altered his behavior. His moment of empathy for Buffy doesn't change the fact that he's willing to walk out and let her get killed. He clearly, at the end, thinks that Angel is almost certainly going to kill Buffy, and he leaves. He's done his part of the deal. He helped her put one over on Angel, get the upper hand at least for a while, and he got Drusilla out. He does not feel obligated to stay and see it all the way through doesn't care that she is going to get killed or does he so now I'm gonna flip again because in season three lovers walk when Spike returns we will find out that Drusilla ultimately breaks it off with him and it is yes because he turned against her an angel but she says later that she saw it that the slayer was all around him so drusilla already we find out later is sensing that there is something about spike's choice to align with the slayer another uh hint or foreshadowing is when joyce says to buffy this is insane and she needs help and buffy says i'm not crazy in season six normal again when Buffy under the influence of a drug her enemies inject her with thinks that she is in a mental institution that all of her life as the slayer is a delusion and in a lucid moment she tells Willow that when she first told her parents about vampires and being a slayer they put her in a psych ward that felt retconned to me but at that point we had Dawn in the world so I even thought well maybe that's something that was came in when the monks changed 
everyone's memories and maybe that was part of the altered landscape but watching this I think well maybe the writers did have an idea that that could be part of Buffy's backstory on the other hand it's not that strange that Joyce might say that because while she has yes known Buffy got in fights and got in trouble and had violence and washed blood out of her clothes uh, most of us wouldn't think oh well she must be fighting vampires the part where Xander tells Buffy this lie he's about to deliver the real message that Willow's doing the curse and then he thinks the better of it and says that Willow said kick his ass Buffy never finds out that was not Willow's message the closest we will get is the episode I'm pretty sure it's season seven where Anya has returned to her vengeance demon ways and she kills slaughters these fraternity uh, boys and Buffy is setting out to kill Anya and Xander and Buffy argue about what Buffy should do and Buffy says I killed Angel because Xander is saying you know oh well it's fine you you don't kill Spike but you're gonna kill Anya and she says I killed Angel did you forget and she says something like oh and your message and she looks at Willow kick his ass and Willow looks so taken aback like she can't even process it quickly enough to say I never said that I think that's the closest we get to the two of them addressing that and it really makes me wonder how much damage did that do primarily to the Buffy and Willow relationship and is that part of why Buffy withdraws because I have always had a bit of a problem it has always felt a, a little manufactured to me in later seasons and I'll talk about it when we get there when Buffy is pulling away it feels like something to me the writers kind of force on her to give her inner conflict and vulnerability at times when I think she would share with her friends she would not hide from them but now I wonder is that part of it Buffy feels like at that moment when she so needed to feel her friend's support no they could not help her fight in that moment but she needed to not feel alone she needed at least to feel emotionally supported and she feels Willow not only passively didn't support her but actively said something so hurtful to Buffy Buffy already knew she had to kill Angel she already told Willow that so there is in her mind no excuse and I think no excuse had Willow really sent that message to Buffy and specifically it may inform why when Buffy is back in season three it takes her so long to tell her friends that Angel changed back to himself before she killed him and that she had to kill him anyway and finally one of my favorite things this will start this relationship between Joyce and Spike always Joyce will treat him like a person she will try to be polite to him even here when her mind is reeling trying to take all this in she is making conversation she is trying to make things seem normal and treat him like any other guest in her house especially one who is there to help her daughter and after she dies Spike will say this tell Xander she's the only one who treated him with respect and he says something like she always had a cup of for me and we'll see in later episodes Spike will confide how he's feeling with Joyce and she will really really try to listen now often he is also doing something nefarious this also sows the seeds for some fantastic confusion in season three for Joyce because Angel comes back it's a tough road but he is good again Joyce doesn't know that and and Spike has weaseled his way into her kitchen because he still has an invite to come in she's getting him hot cocoa with the little marshmallows in it Angel comes to the door can't get in and the last Joyce knows is Angel is evil and Buffy had to try to kill him so of course she won't invite him in and it's perfectly reasonable that Joyce thinks Spike is the good guy and Angel is the bad guy so that is it for the spoilers and this episode thank you again for listening you can tweet me lisa m lily hashtag buffy story or email me lisa at lisa music for this episode was composed and performed by robert newcastle buffy and the art of story is a production of spiny woman llc copyright 2020